Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and we like to begin our show with a prayer, and we will be praying the Angelus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, and she conceived of the Holy Spirit. Hail Hail Mary, Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to your word. Hail Hail Mary, Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the Word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. Hail Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech you, O Lord, your grace into our hearts, that we, to whom the incarnation of Christ your Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this episode, Bishop talks about St. James the Apostle, including his journey with Christ, his martyrdom, and his connection to a traditional pilgrimage in Europe. Afterwards, it's on to an explanation of how bishops dedicate new altars. And then, National Natural Family Planning Week. The show wraps up with Bishop answering questions submitted by listeners on topics like short masses, marriages outside the Catholic Church, and more. Submit your question by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here as always with the Fort Wayne South Bend Diocese Bishop, Bishop Kevin C. Rhodes. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Kyle. Great to be here. I hope you're having a good summer. It's been delightful. Yes, good, good. Definitely. Uh, also, tomorrow we will be celebrating the Feast of St. James the Apostle. There's two St. James the Apostles. This is the greater, is that right? That's right. That's so unfortunate that there's St. James the Lesser. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, St. James the Lesser is the son of Alpheus. Okay. And St. James the the Greater is the son of Zebedee, the brother of St. John the Apostle. But since there are the two Jameses, the church kind of distinguished them by those nicknames, James the Greater and James the Lesser. Uh-huh. And I guess he's James the Greater because he was one of the three close, you know, Peter, James, and John. They sure. were they were with Jesus at some key moments that the other apostles weren't there. They were like the 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 inner circle, so to speak. That'd be the transfiguration and in the garden. Yes, and the agony in the garden. Um, so when you think about those two events, I mean, seeing the Lord's glory, you know, on Mount Tabor. In the transfiguration, what an amazing thing. And, you know, Moses and Elijah. And then that, that glorious event. And then 
not long afterwards, seeing the suffering and humiliation mm -hmm. of Jesus, his agony in the garden. So it's interesting, those two experiences are kind of like uh, opposites, you know, the glory and then the, the suffering. And of course, our Lord's glory was fulfilled on the cross by his sharing in our sufferings. Mm -hmm. So what else do we know about St. James? Well, I mean, is he um, the name uh, James is a translation of of the name Jacob? So he has huh. that name of of the pa great patriarch of the Old Testament, Jacob. But we know, you know, he was a fisherman. He was, you know, remember they were at their nets. He and John, when Jesus called them to to follow him to be his disciples. But we find out in the Acts of the Apostles that he was martyred because. The, the king at the time was Herod Agrippa, and this was in the 40s, so it was very early on. King Herod Agrippa was the grandson of Herod the Great. And um, we read in, in chapter 12 of the Acts of the Apostles that they laid violent hands upon James and that they had him killed by the sword. And it, we know it was James the Greater because... It says in Acts, James, the brother of John. Mm. Now, there's no details about that. You know, he was killed by the sword, you know, probably beheaded. Obviously, he had a position of importance in the church of Jerusalem. There is a later tradition that you may know about that, that he may have um, visited Spain and evangelized there. And then there's another tradition that that says that his body, that it, that he really never went to Spain, but that his body was taken there. Tradition has it that his body is entombed in the famous city of Santiago de Compostela. So mm -hmm. that became a famous pilgrimage site in the Middle Ages where people would go to pray at the tomb of of St. James. And it's, you know, we call it the Camino, mm -hmm. you know, where people would come from France and there's different routes of the Camino. And even today, it's a famous pilgrimage spot, not just for people in Europe, but for the whole world. We know, you know, there's people in our diocese who've gone over to do the Camino. And sure. so that's a really a beautiful custom, beautiful tradition. But I think today, I mean, as we celebrate the Feast of St. James, I think there's certain things we can think about is like how prompt he was in answering the Lord's call to follow him. I think that's a beautiful example for us. He left the boat and followed him, left everything behind, all the securities of, of human life and, and how enthusiastic he was to follow Christ. And then, and then he bared witness to him mm -hmm. uh, with courage to the point of, of martyrdom. There's an interesting thing. He wasn't perfect. I mean, we know when we read the scriptures, the gospels, the different flaws and weaknesses of the apostles. We see a lot of Peter's weaknesses. But also, um, if you remember that, and actually it's the gospel for the Feast of St. James, when um, the mother of James and John requested of Jesus that her two sons would sit at the right and the left of Jesus in his kingdom. Uh-huh. You know, sometimes people say, oh, yeah, it's terrible that they would look for that. But I think I was thinking, you know, a mother always wants what's best for her children. So yeah. I wouldn't blame the mother. But it's obviously a misunderstanding of what the kingship of Jesus is all about. And really, I don't think it was just the mother. I think James and John had their sights on this, too. Hmm. Um, 
seats of honor in, in Christ's kingdom. And maybe they had their mother <laughs> make that request for them. Who knows? But in any event, they didn't really understand that the kingship of Jesus was different from kingship in this world, that the kingship of Jesus is entered via the cross. And, you know, they came to learn and understand that later. Now, Jesus in the gospel had to correct them mm -hmm. uh, or correct uh, the mother. He said, you don't know what you're asking. And then he said to the two, to James and John, can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? And then they enthusiastically go, oh, yeah, we can. Mm -hmm. But they didn't really understand Jesus because what was Jesus talking about? He's talking about his passion, the cup of Christ. It's the cup of suffering and death. But actually, when you think about it, they didn't understand at that point, but they actually did eventually partake of the cup of suffering. Certainly, James did. He was the first of the apostles of the Twelve to drink the cup when he was uh, martyred mm -hmm. in Jerusalem. And though John's the only apostle that we believe died a natural death, the others were all martyred. But that's not to say that he didn't experience suffering in his sure. life. We know St. John was was exiled mm -hmm. to the island of Patmos. So he had his hardships too, even though he didn't die a martyr's death. So it's a really great gospel as we think about this great apostle, St. James, and the lesson that they're not to exercise authority like the, like the rulers of this world, like the rulers of the Gentiles, you know, arrogance. And Jesus says, if you wish to be great, you must become a servant of others. Mm -hmm. That's what Jesus did. His entire mission was to serve rather than be served. And he gave his life for ransom of the many. And that's um, pretty much the standard for those who are successors of the apostles today, but the bishops, but also all, all disciples of Christ called to serve. So we can look back at this reading and say, when Jesus said, can you drink the chalice or drink the cup that I'm going to drink? We realize that he's talking about this suffering that you're going to have to endure. Would they have had any indication? What would they have interpreted his cup or his chalice to be? You know, I, it's a, that's a good question. Um, you know, they enthusiastically right away said, we can, but I don't think they understood that this was about suffering. Mm -hmm. I have no idea what was in their minds yeah. when they said, we can. Uh, I can't imagine, though, that they thought at that point that the chalice he was speaking about was the passion. Would they have thought he was talking about literally drinking out of a cup or would it have been implied that it has to do with some kind of lifestyle or i think it was the latter okay. i think it was probably yeah not a literal thing but they they probably thought that they would share in in some somehow in the kingship that jesus was bringing to the world but again they didn't yet understand well the nature of that kingship mm -hmm. All right. Well, coming up, we'll talk about some new altars that have been anointed and what that process looks like. Also, Natural Family Planning Week and your questions right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.
Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. And Bishop, you recently anointed some new altars in our diocese on June 29th, the Saints Peter and Paul Parish in Huntington, and then Our Lady of Good Hope back in May. And there's some pictures that were posted along with articles in the Today's Catholic about this. And I, I think it'd be really interesting, first of all, to hear why they got new altars maybe, and then also uh, what the process of anointing an altar is. You know, the altar is the center of every Catholic church and chapel. It's, it's um, the most important object in the church because on the altar, the Eucharistic sacrifice is offered hmm. and celebrated. So from the early centuries of the church, they've had the dedication or consecration of altars. The altar is also a symbol of Christ. If you read the letter to the Hebrews, Jesus is presented as the high priest, but also the living altar of the heavenly temple. Hmm. So this really has Old Testament roots. I mean, even in the Old Testament, we read about the altar in the temple of Jerusalem being consecrated to the Lord. Mm -hmm. Now, in the Old Testament, of course, the sacrifices on the altar were animals or plants. So the sacrifice on the altar, the Christian altar, is infinitely superior to the, the altars in the temples of old. And it's important that the altar, therefore, be dignified once it's consecrated Nothing else can be done on it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's forever restricted that that uh, only for the liturgy. Mm -hmm. And it's a beautiful ceremony. I've dedicated a lot of new altars in the diocese. You mentioned recently Our Lady of Good Hope and Saints Peter and Paul. Some of the churches, really, the altars were kind of temporary or they weren't really made of the durable material, not made of stone. Okay. Or, or th and, and so... In, in many parishes, then they said, "No, we need to get a we need to have a new altar, one that really is more beautiful, more stable." So that's happened in a number of places. Obviously, I'll do this when there's a new church because usually when there's a new church, there's a new altar. Mm -hmm. So I'll dedicate the church, but also dedicate the altar. The altar, as I said, is a sign of Christ, and the sacrifice of the Eucharist is celebrated on it. But the altar is also a table for the, the banquet of the Eucharist. So it has those double meanings, okay? So the memorial of the Lord is celebrated. His body and blood are given to us So because the Eucharist is both a sacrifice and a banquet. So the dignity of the altar is because it's, it's the table of the Lord. And oftentimes in the early church, altars would be erected over the burial place of martyrs and, and other saints. So the tradition began after, you know, the church continued to grow and, and churches started to be built. They weren't all just built over the tombs of martyrs or saints anymore. So the custom began of putting relics of saints and martyrs beneath the altars. We do that today. And, um, we either put the relics in an altar stone, which is placed within the mensa or the top of the altar, or below the altar. And so that's that's a part of the ceremony. It's not required that you have a relic, oh, okay. but it's very common because it kind of reminds us of of what you know the early uh, the early church. When you think about the martyrs too, they they 
it's appropriate to have the mass over the bones or relics of martyrs because they kind of live the Eucharist to the max because okay, in the Eucharist we're celebrating the sacrifice of Christ, which becomes present. Well, they partake, partook in that sacrifice. They gave their lives for Christ. They died for him. So when we celebrate the dedication of the altar, it's, it's a really beautiful ceremony. As a matter of fact, so many times when I've had mass with the rite of dedication of an altar, people afterwards will come up and say, Bishop, that was so beautiful. Hmm. And so now we've had a lot of people in our diocese who've attended masses and seen the dedication of an altar. But I know there's a lot of Catholics who've never been to one. Yeah. So I encourage if there is, you know, to come because it really is a beautiful ceremony. You know, I've also been doing a lot of dedications of altars in the chapels at Notre Dame. Okay. I think almost every year because they've built new residence halls. And you may know that at Notre Dame, the residence halls all have chapels. Uh-huh. And as a matter of fact, this August, uh, the end of August, I'll be back at Notre Dame. There'll be another new residence hall, and I'll be doing Mass with the dedication of, <laughs> of the altar. The prayers of the Mass for the dedication of, the, of an altar are really beautiful. There's special readings. But it actually takes place after the homily and the creed. We have the actual ceremony of the dedication. And it begins with the litany of the saints. And if I think people are familiar with the litany of the saints, if you've been to a uh, an ordination, you've heard that. And, and many other times we, uh, you know, at the Easter vigil, and other times we 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 sing or the the litany of the saints. That's sung at the very beginning of this rite of dedication, and then after the litany of the saints, if there are going to be relics to be deposited, that's done after the litany of the saints. Okay. Then after that, the actual prayer of dedication. It's a long prayer that uh, the bishop standing at the altar prays this this beautiful prayer that kind of includes um, remembrance of altars of the past when, for example, Noah built an altar to the Lord Mm -hmm. after the flood, or Abraham constructed an altar for the sacrifice of his son, Isaac, and then Moses built an altar, and remember they they sprink, he sprinkled on the altar the blood of the lamb, hmm. and then it's saying that all these things, all these altars of old, really foreshadowed or prefigured Christ and the altar of the cross. So all that's in this prayer it recalls all of that, and then then I or the bishop blesses. Uh, you know, ask the Lord to bless the altar, that it will be reserved always for the sacrifice of Christ, that it's the table of the Lord where people will be nourished and strengthened. It's a table of joy, place of communion and peace, a source of unity and friendship, center of th- our thanksgiving and praise. I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful prayer. Mm-hmm. When the prayer is over, then the bishop removes the chasuble and puts on like an apron, it's called a linen grimial. And at that point, I take the sacred chrism and I pour it on the altar. Really unusual because when we think of holy chrism, it's used in sacraments, it's put on people, uh-huh. baptism, confirmation, holy orders. Uh-huh. But when it comes to dedications of churches, 
chrism is used to anoint the walls. And when it's dedication of altars, chrism is used there. So it's the only time where chrism is used for inanimate objects. So it hmm. shows how important the altar is. So I would pour chrism in the middle of the altar, then on each of the four corners of the altar, and then I do the whole table of the altar. So with my hands, I spread the chrism over the whole mensa, the top of the altar. And um, they're usually the, they're singing a psalm at that point. It's very, very impressive. And what I say when I pour the chrism is this. We now anoint this altar. May God in his power make it holy, a visible sign of the mystery of Christ who offered himself for the life of the world. Mm. And then I spread the, the oil, the chrism. When that's over, I take off the gremio, put the chasuble back on, and then have the insensation of the altar. This is also very beautiful because a brazier, uh, like a little bucket, is put on the middle of the altar. Now, remember, the altar is completely bare. Mm -hmm. The chrism's all on it still. Then there's a lot of charcoal in this brazier, and I put incense on the charcoal, and it's a lot of charcoal. So a lot of incense starts rising. Uh -huh. And when I put the uh, incense in, there's a little prayer I say, Lord, may our prayer ascend as incense in your sight. As this building is filled with fragrance, so may your church fill the world with the fragrance of Christ. And it's wow. really amazing because you see the incense rising and it kind of goes throughout the church uh -huh. and you smell this beautiful fragrance. As it says, it reminds us of spreading the fragrance of Christ. Again, then they're singing another psalm. After doing that, I incense. I walk around the altar with another with the thurible, incensing the altar that's just been dedicated, hmm. and then a uh, minister then incenses the people. So there's a lot of incense yeah. at a dedication. After the insensation, people come up to wipe the table of the altar to remove the chrism. Uh, and then the altar cloth is put on and flowers are brought up, candles are brought up. So it's the dressing of the altar. It's really mm -hmm. beautiful. And then at that point, I give the deacon a lighted candle. And I say, light of Christ, shine on this altar and be reflected by those who share at this table. So then he takes the lighted candle and lights the candles at the altar. Now, keep in mind, the altar has not yet been used because they're not to celebrate Mass on it until it's dedicated. So this is the first time the Eucharist will be celebrated on it. When I've entered church at the beginning of Mass, I don't kiss the altar because it's not yet dedicated. Hmm. So when I go over then, after all that's been done, to begin the offertory, to begin the liturgy of the Eucharist, I kiss the altar in the middle of mass there. Yeah. And um, that's pretty um, dramatic. Uh, so that's basically the ceremony. So again, if people haven't been to the dedication of an altar, I recommend it. Other than the, the chapel at uh, Notre Dame at the end of August, I can't think of when the next dedication of an altar will be in our diocese. But they're always, um, you know, my public schedule's put in the, today's Catholics, so I won't be surprised that there will be more because there are still a few churches that really need 
more dignified new altars. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the relics that they have the option to put in, does it matter the class of the relic? It has to first? be first class relics. Okay. So yeah, has can't be second or third. Okay. Interesting. And in the pictures, I know whenever you doing the the chrism oil, you have your sleeves rolled up. Yeah. Which uh, are there very many opportunities for you to roll up your sleeves during masses? <laughs> I can't think of any other times, but you know what? It, yeah, because you know, with all that chrism, it'll yeah. get all over the all over the sleeves. I tend to get chrism on my sleeves when I have confirmations. The poor uh, Karen Fitzpatrick, Deacon Jim Fitzpatrick's wife, uh-huh. will uh, will do will take care of my vestments, and I'll say, I'll say, sorry, Karen, I got chrism on it again. Uh-huh. <laughs> so she has to get the stains out. Oh, that's nice of her. Uh, another thing worth mentioning is National Natural Family Planning Week, which is July 21st through July 27th. And tomorrow, the 25th, besides being the Feast of St. James, is the 51st anniversary of the Pope Paul VI Papal Encyclical Humanae Vitae. I think we've talked about this a little bit in the past, but thought maybe this is a good excuse to talk a little bit about natural family planning and humana vitae yeah you know it's you know the 51st anniversary of humana vitae uh saint pope paul the sixth uh famous encyclical of 1968 which there was so much dissent and opposition to it he was very courageous uh in maintaining the the truth of our faith in this area saying that marriage is oriented to two ends, the good of the spouses, the unitive aspect, and then also to the creation and nurture of new human life, procreation. So uh, a little word about uh, natural family planning and then a little bit about maybe Paul VI's teaching, but also uh, John Paul II, how he um, not just reiterated the teaching of Humanae Vitae, but went so much deeper in uh, explaining God's plan for marriage and sex. But anyhow, really natural family planning is an umbrella term for different methods that are used to either achieve pregnancy or avoid pregnancy at Mm -hmm. a particular time. And basically the different methods, they're all based on observing the, the naturally occurring signs and symptoms of the fertile and infertile phases of a woman's menstrual cycle. So couples using natural family planning, NFP, will often avoid pregnancy. Uh, in order to avoid pregnancy, would abstain from intercourse during the fertile phase mm-hmm. of the woman's cycle. They would not use drugs, devices, or other procedures to avoid pregnancy. But also, they would, uh, to achieve pregnancies, they know when the fertile periods are. Mm -hmm. So that is very, very helpful. So we shouldn't look at natural family planning just as avoiding pregnancy. And it's important to understand that that there have to be serious motives to avoid pregnancy. In other words, you know, usually it's a couple, they still have to be open to procreation, but they would space out the births of their children. So if they have just and serious reasons, they can do this. It shouldn't be motivated by selfishness because 
parents are called to be uh, generous mm-hmm. uh, in, in having children. But sometimes there are important reasons that um, they would um, not be ready for uh, a new child so they can abstain during those fertile periods. I think it might be helpful to to think a little bit about the truth of this teaching because it is rejected by many. Humane Vitae was rejected by many. And I think it really helps to see how John Paul II approached this. Okay. Even prior to Humane Vitae, John Paul as father and then bishop, then Cardinal Wojtyła in Poland was writing about this. Remember, he had ministry with a lot of young people, and uh, so he reflected a lot on this. And he wrote a a great book called Love and Responsibility Mm -hmm. back in 1960. And that is a book I highly recommend. And we know that that Pope Paul VI was reading this book as he wrote Humane Vitae. Huh. So it's really interesting that, that John Paul even ha- had an influence, uh, or Cardinal Wojtyla had an influence on, uh, on Paul VI as he discerned what he was going to write in the, um, in the encyclical. And, and John Paul used a phenomenological approach and a more personalist approach, and I think that's been a great help for people to understand the reasons and according to the way people think today. And he really stressed the fundamental dignity of the human person, that we are not objects to be used. We are subjects. We're persons with dignity. And that dignity must always be respected. And we respect another person fully, when we love the other person and we work for what is best for the other person, we are not to use other people for our own selfish desires. So you can see how this then will relate to a married couple. Mm-hmm. Obviously, as human beings, we're naturally attracted to persons of the opposite sex, and we are to see that attraction as a gift, a precious gift. And that desire that we have for union with the other is a very powerful desire. That's part of, of who we are as, as human beings, this need for union with another. And we see that in you know, the relationship between a man and a woman in marriage. So John Paul makes a very important point that when a man and woman truly love each other, They desire to give themselves to the other, a complete gift of themselves to the other. Well, that's one of the key points in John Paul's later defense of Humane Vitae when he wrote all those audience talks three or four years that came to be known as Theology of the Body. Mm -hmm. And... What John Paul gets at is that when one uses contraception, that full and complete union that we seek to have with the one we love in marriage becomes impossible. There's holding something back. And what's being held back? The gift of fertility. So there's a meaning to the body. There's a meaning of sex. And we need to conform our behavior 
to that. So John Paul reiterates what Humane Vitae says, that there's this inseparable connection between the unitive and procreative meanings of sex, and they're both inherent to the marriage act. Mm -hmm. uh, they're inseparable. They are the truth about sex. That's what sex is about, unity, unitive and procreative. One should not deny the procreative power. One should not deliberately withhold from sexual union what it's meant to be. One must respect both the unitive and procreative ends of marriage. So if we're talking about com complete union with the beloved, then, you know, it also means openness to life. So I think um, a lot of young people that we teach in our high schools and colleges really get it. You know, like I think John Paul's approach has been extremely helpful in gaining greater acceptance of the teaching of Paul VI about the immorality of contraception. Mm -hmm. Still, I'd say most disagree with the teaching, but I've seen a growing number of those who, who see the beauty of this teaching because to see that it's wrong to use sex to express only physical desire, that there should be this desire for total union, and that means being open to procreation because when one is not open to procreation, the union is diminished. The Pope is basically saying that when a couple has sexual relations, it's, it's about love, wanting to express the complete, ultimate union, total self-gift, which includes the possibility of having a child. Mm -hmm. And this is the, the meaning of, of the sexual act. It's union and procreation. To recognize that children are a gift, you know, which brings to fruition this loving union of a couple. So when one has sex without contraception, one's not holding back one's own fertility. Mm -hmm. Now, someone says, that, mean that, that means the church teaches that couples have to have as many children as biologically possible. No, Pope John Paul, like, like Paul VI, talked about responsible parenthood. It's okay to wish to limit family size, but it's, it's how one does this. And this is where natural family planning comes in taking chemicals or, or using artificial devices which work against fertility would be wrong. But if one uses natural family planning, they're not closing out the possibility of a child. They're having sex during the infertile periods. That's not closing out the possibility of having children because it's nature. Nature is closing out that possibility. Mm. So, with NFP, couples are not telling a lie with their bodies. You know, it's something natural. Couples who are involved with natural family planning see that fertility is a good, but they're living in accord with the laws of nature, which are, of course, the laws of God. It requires, though, a certain amount of sacrifice. There's, uh, there's the sacrifice of, if they're wanting to space out their kids, it means that they have to have that mastery of themselves to not have sex during fertile periods. That's something that helps to grow interior strength and virtue. And I've talked to many couples who use natural family planning who says it's made them better people, better, 
better persons, better parents, because they have to exercise self-control in matters of sex. Again, some people don't value that, but it's really important to have that self-control and self-mastery. So I think it's if people want to know more, I highly recommend reading not just Humane Vitae, but also the teachings of Pope St. John Paul II in the Theology of the Body. Yeah. There's so many resources out there, so thanks for sharing that with us. If you have any questions for Bishop, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, we have some questions about baptizing children against the will of their parents, Bishop's pectoral cross, and more on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and he will be answering questions that you've submitted. Our first listener submitted question is, my niece and her husband were married in the church and since have had a child with another on the way. They're not planning on baptizing either and feel it's a choice for the children to make when they are adults. They have shut me down when I have tried to talk to them about this. I am stressed and so saddened by this that words can't even explain it. Is there any way... I can obtain some sort of blessing or baptism for the sake of their souls. Can anything be done on this concerning matter? I appreciate any light that you can shed. Thank you, and God bless you. Thank you. That's a good question. It's really painful when there's someone you love who, you know, is not practicing the faith or has left the faith. Or in this case, I don't know the situation of the caller's niece and her husband, if they're going to church at all. But but not having their child baptized is 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 very sad. But they are the parents. So you really there's nothing you can really do other than you've already talked to them. I would say your own example, praying for them, mm -hmm. pray that they might have a conversion of heart. You know, it's the right of the parents to decide. And I think your witness of the faith, your praying for them is basically all you can do if you've already explained to them the importance of baptism. You know, that argument to wait till they become an adult, you'll hear that now and then. And of course, there are some Christian churches that don't baptize infants. They mm -hmm. wait until they're older. We don't agree with that because we want the child to have the grace of God as soon as possible to become an adopted son or daughter of God. We want them to be cleansed of original sin. We want them to become members of Christ and his church uh, as, as soon as possible. That's why the church says that an infant should be baptized within the first weeks after birth. Mm -hmm. uh, it really is important, but um, but again, it's the decision of the parents. Right. Someone asked, can you describe your pectoral cross? What are the images on it? How is it different from a regular cross? A pectoral cross is, you know, all bishops wear a pectoral cross. A pectoral comes from a Latin word meaning referring to one's breast. So it's worn over our breast or over our chest. I have a few different pectoral crosses that hmm. have been given to me, but my favorite one that I wear almost all the time is one that I received from Pope Benedict the 16th when really? I was in Rome. And it was, I think, during the last Ad Limina visit, which was in 2011. 
I really love it. It's it's a cross that is an image of a cross that hangs in the church of San, the, or the Basilica of San Anselmo, St. Anselm huh. in Rome. It's a Benedictine church, a monastery. So he gave us, the bishops who were at the Ad Limina, he gave us these pectoral crosses, golden color. And it's kind of like a Byzantine style. Looks like it's around 13th century, typical Byzantine crucifix. And there are various images on it. Of course, it has the body of Christ hanging on the cross. And below it has an image of St. John and the Blessed Mother at the foot of the cross. Mm. And then in each of the four corners, of the of the cross are other images including at the very top an image of a pelican mm-hmm. uh, with its babies underneath that's a symbol of the eucharist mm-hmm. the uh, the pelican who with its beak uh, pierces its own side and blood comes forth that is drank by the babies but um, so a symbol of the eucharist very ancient christian symbol on another side it has christ in glory christ sitting uh, in glory and the other arm it has jesus carrying the cross and then at the bottom an image of jesus between two soldiers um, being tortured so it's a beautiful pectoral cross. It's, uh, it's solid. On the back of it at the bottom, it has the, the papal coat of arms of Benedict XVI. Huh. Yeah. Right. One of our listeners said, short daily masses are convenient, even as short as 10 to 15 minutes, but these short masses seem less reverent. At what point is reverence for the Eucharist less important than the access to the Eucharist? I'd say at no point. Okay. Um, reverence should never be seen as optional mm-hmm. <laughs> or as less important than access to the Eucharist. So, I no, I ten or fifteen minutes for Mass—that's just not right. Mm-hmm. Um, how can one celebrate Mass reverently in ten to fifteen minutes? Mm-hmm. It's not possible because if one's going to celebrate Mass in ten to fifteen minutes, that means one's rushing through the prayers. How can one pray well? when you're just rushing through the prayers and the actions of the Mass. All right. Well, you can ask your question by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line 260-436-9598. And we have questions about when annulments are necessary and more coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives by providing products and services that save them money. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it away to our members' favorite charities. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman asking the questions that you've submitted. Someone explained, our youngest daughter, who has never been married, is engaged to a man who's not Catholic, but was married before, but not in a Catholic church. Why does he have to get an annulment? I thought annulment was only for Catholics. Please help us. Thank you for everything you do for us. I enjoy listening. God bless. Good question. I I get that question every now and then. I think it's a very simple answer is we recognize the validity 
of marriages of people who aren't Catholic. Mm -hmm. If there's a marriage between two Protestants, we're not saying that's not a true marriage okay. or not a valid marriage. It is true, as long as there wasn't some natural impediment. Same with even marriages of non-Christians. Though they're not sacramental marriages, they are true, real marriages. Mm -hmm. So if you have someone who is not Catholic, who's been married before, and they wish to marry a Catholic, like the, the, the listener's question, if they've been married before, that, that's not permitted unless it was an invalid marriage. So an annulment would be needed. There need to be an examination of that marriage to see if it was valid or not. But the presumption is it was valid. Okay. Yeah. So hopefully that helps. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bishop. This has been another great episode. Could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Listen next week for another new episode of Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. <laughs>